Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I must say that this morning, I honestly feel like an old wine skin with new wine poured into it. If you've read the scripture, you'll know what that means. For he said, if you put new wine in an old wine skin, it will burst. And I feel like I'm about to bust with the truth of God's word. I pray that today we would leave different than when we got here. I pray that you will hear more than a homily or a little talk. I pray you do not see me this morning. I pray that we will leave saying it has been good to be in the presence of the Lord. As we begin looking at chapter 9 of Mark, I think back to being a child. And my mother, she had memorized, committed to memory. They couldn't afford books growing up. And so what she would learn other places, she would memorize. And so still to this day, she told my children the same things she told me in the old fairy tales. And I heard the old stories of Cinderella and the ugly duckling and other stories like that. And one of the major themes flowing through those fairy tales were how subjects, things would be in the most destitute situation Cinderella, a rejected stepsister. The ugly duckling, one who everyone mocked and he even looked into the pond and he said, oh, I'm so ugly. But then came the day that the ugly duckling became a beautiful swan. And Cinderella received her prince. She rode in her carriage and wore the silver slipper. What happened in those stories was what we would call a metamorphosis. And that word metamorphosis literally means to be transformed. It comes from a Greek word found in Mark chapter 9. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Today, as we begin this message, this look into this context. We spoke last week of how Jesus was beginning to change gears from his Galilean ministry and he had set his eyes and his hearts on Jerusalem. Mark 9 is all about the transfiguration, the metamorphosis, the the transformation. It is one of those rare events where the Lord allows us to glimpse His awesome and inspiring glory. I don't know about you, but there's too many days goes by in my life where I will not be still. I will not listen. I will not do what it takes 
to see the glory and splendor of Jesus. I know we all get busy and we all have things that we deal with for just a moment. I pray that our hearts are stirred and we look at the metamorphosis, the transformation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 details the emptying of Jesus, that the, the act of veiling His glory and stripping Himself of that independent use of His divine attributes. He did not stop being God, but He denied the use when they cried, hey, if you're really God, call on the angels. Oh, He calls for Elijah. Do something, save yourself, and us. The Mount of Transfiguration displays for the, this inner group, Peter, James, and John, and for us today looking back, the fact that Jesus never stopped being God just because He stepped into the body of a man. He humbled Himself. Jesus pulls back the veil and He allows Peter and James, and John, and you and I, a glimpse into the very heavenly holy of holies here on this mountain. And so the transfiguration of Jesus and the transformation of His followers is what we want to focus on today. First of all, I want you to notice with me the transfigured servant. I want you to go back with me, if you would, to that first slide. I want to show something before we go forward. That is what most historians and Bible scholars believe to be the Mount of Transfiguration. That is Mount Hermon that sits at the very northern tip of Israel. Yes, it snows in Israel. Matter of fact, I was, when I was there in February of 1986, as we uh, descended from our tour buses to walk to the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem, it began to snow. And by the time we left the Damascus Gate and went around the edge of the city, snow had lightly dusted the cover of the earth there in Jerusalem. It was the most beautiful sight of snow on that golden city. As we look, we're looking up. Now on the other side is Syria. And this situates at the very top. It's a little sidebar here. Hermon stays snow-capped throughout the year. In this dry and arid land, at this elevation, snow falls. And from this snow, as it melts, it runs down and forms what we know to be what river? The Jordan. And the Jordan feeds a little sea where Jesus had spent his time. It's a little lake called Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is where Peter and James and John and Andrew and the others fished. It's where Jesus walked upon the water. It's where he fed 5,000 with two fish. It's a very fruitful area because that water fresh coming down off the mountain feeds it. But you know that the Sea of Galilee sits at over 600 feet below sea level. It is a, a moderate, it is a miracle of antiquity, of, of geology for this lake to sit 600 foot below sea level and yet have life. But out of it flows living water and it continues down and it runs into another sea. The Dead Sea. And here, the lowest spot on the face of the earth, 1,300 feet below sea level with roughly a 33% salt content to where you can't even sink because of the salt. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It is the last stop from that snow to the end where nothing lives because there is no outlet. It just stagnates in that spot. 
But what I want us to look at today is what happened up there on that beautiful snow-capped mount of transfiguration. Today, as we look at the transfigured servant, we see the heavenly scene laid out before us. He said in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured or transformed before them. I want you to understand something about life today. So many of us knows we have been too long since we have met with God and had a, a godly visitation in our life and we have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And a lot of the reason is we went through trials and we went through tribulations and rather than doing the work of climbing the mountain, we have relegated ourselves to dwelling in the valley. But I want you to understand, before you can get to the mountain, you must leave the valley. And there's valleys all around it. Think about it. On this side, Mount Hermon, is the low-lying area of Galilee. And we see places that even though it's around that beautiful Sea of Galilee, Jesus cursed a city named Capernaum. And other places that He had cursed because of their unbelief and how they acted. Listen, the valley... It's where you till. The valley is where you plant. But have hope. For the mountaintop will always rise above the valley. What happened when they ascended? Think about it. Peter, James, and John, they're just kicking it, you know. They are walking with Jesus. They are the inner circle, and we will know that will carry on throughout the coming days and months. And so Jesus said, hey, y'all nine stay right here. I'm going to take you, you, and you with me. They said, turn around, you know, if they're like any other kids. They looked and said, hey, y'all got to stay here. We're going. We're going up there. And so many times in a Christian's life, we, we want to act like we're something special compared to everyone else. Well, I want you to know you are special, but not in comparison to others. You are special because of the one who calls you up. Amen? So they go up from the valley to the mountaintop. And when they get there, all of a sudden, their eyes behold something their spirit cannot comprehend. It says as they reached the high mountain apart by themselves that Jesus was transformed before them. It, it literally is the idea of that caterpillar that goes from this slinky thing with all kind of fuzzy things wrapped up in a cocoon and it almost looks like a, 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 a no-legged spider in this nasty mess and all of a sudden breaking forth in a beautiful butterfly. Everybody loves butterflies. Nobody really cares about the caterpillar. The truth is, we all like Jesus in all His splendor and His glory. But He's about to tell them, not only is it about my splendor and glory, it's about the cross. It's about why I came to this earth. To suffer a death like no man ever had or ever could. It was the metamorphosis. But what happens with a metamorphosis is the change comes from within and it goes out to where what is seen outside is what has been transformed inside versus a masquerade. A masquerade is that which is changed on the outside, but the inside stays the same. Oh, God help us. I went to New Orleans several years ago. Becky and I had went, and we brought some gifts home for the kids. And one was this big peacock-feathered 
masquerade mask that we gave, and it's still in its little packet. We gave it to Emily just as a symbol of New Orleans, of all of that hoopla down there. And it's for a masquerade that you cover your sails. One of the big shows, everybody's talking about the mass singer. The dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And they're trying to guess who's behind the mask. What's behind the mask has not changed. And they give clues to what's inside. I'm going to tell you something. You can look at the clues of people's life. And though outside the masquerade is, look, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. But inside is death and dying and hurting. And without God transforming us, does not matter what the outside looks like. But let's just leave us completely in the dust right now. And I want us to narrow in. I want us to zoom in on the one. It didn't say they were transfigured. It said Jesus was. And what does that mean? What did it look like? We, we know what it means. Look with me on verse in verse 3, and his raiment, his clothing became shining. It was shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. I don't know about you, but this, this just jumps off the page at me. Now, I showed you the picture. Told you what happens up there. So, no doubt, they're standing amongst snow. They're up here, where did it say? Did it say that they were at the second peak? Did it say that they were at base camp? Where did it say they were at? At the mountaintops, what mine says. They were up there on the top. Up there where the snow was, where the air is crisp and clean and fresh. And it says when they looked at Jesus in His transformation, they saw, first of all, His garment. And the brightness of it. They looked upon it and they saw that it was exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can white them. A fuller was one who did laundry. It, it was just like you take a millwright that works with wood or you take a blacksmith that works with iron. A fuller was, one, was a, a laundryman. And what they would do, and we've heard of the fuller's fire, and we've heard of the fuller in other places of Scripture. What that fuller would do is he would take things that had a very high alkaline base, things like lye soap and niter and other things that, would, would, that was very harsh, but he would use that to try to brighten the clothes. Because remember, they didn't have Kenmore back then. No Clorox in the sense that we've got it. They didn't have all the accommodations of our life. They didn't have quick little Tide pins to fix it right before you went into a meeting. And so they would take their clothes, having walked out in these dirt roads and riding behind a donkey or on a donkey or behind a horse, plowing and, and, and being a shepherd and other things, they would bring their clothes to the fuller and the fuller would put them in this this obnoxious smelling concoction and soak those garments. He would then take those garments and he would lay them out and would literally trod them under his feet, working them back and forth. He would take them then and upon big rocks he would smash them and grind them together to work the stains out of that garment. Listen, my friends, God's Word said that His brightness, it was so stainless that nothing else, no one, no subject, no material could make Him any brighter than what He was. Because you see, now, there's a thing called snow blindness. Anyone ever heard of that or experienced it? I learned very young, we used to like to go snow skiing when I was much younger. And I learned very quickly, you don't go snow skiing without some really good sunglasses. Because you will literally, it, it, it's almost like having your eyes burnt with a welder. It's, 
When you're around something that doesn't give some subject matter, it, it all looks the same. And it becomes very bright to your eyes. Jesus stood out amongst that. We try to bring Jesus down to our level. We try to make him into something we want. Listen, he is telling us that even though the trampling of feet of this world and the other things and, and the subject matter and all of people's ideas and, and materialism and other things cannot brighten anything to compare to Jesus. They are literally standing in the Holy of Holies. That's where God would come and meet with them in the Old Covenant. He would come into the midst of that temple and only one could come in, the high priest, once a year. But Hebrews says Jesus is a greater high priest. He is the greatest of them all. And we see that in this heavenly scene. We can just camp out right here and just talk about Jesus. And it's all because of Jesus. Listen, when's the last time you saw Jesus for who he really is? What is it that you're limiting him? That you're still trying to be the fuller and brighten up the garments? You, you're still trying to crash things together and grind things out to make yourself and other things look better. When what we need to do is look to the one who can do something about it. Problem is, we're trying to dwell in the valley. We're like that, those, that tribe and a half that says, hey, we know we can go over there in the promised land, but we like it over here. We're not willing to take the risk to climb the mountain to see what God can do and who he really is in the dead. Some of us, we're, we're, we're content in our meaning. Listen, we say, oh, he's a good man. Yeah, but is he a grown man? Well, he's old. I didn't ask that. Is he studying the Word of God? I'm talking about study. Oh, he knows about it. How well? Has he ever read it cover to cover? Is, is she a godly woman who studies and prays and pours her heart out before the Lord? It is time, Christians, that we stop being casual with the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way we're going to change our world is to see Jesus and let him change us. Nothing could produce a whiter robe, but notice the heavenly guests. It gets really interesting now. You ever had God just blow your mind? I mean, just blow your mind. You're like, dude, that was impossible. We talked about this on Wednesday night one time about the scripture. It says that we entertain angels unawares. And there were several people who had testimonies that said, I, I was in this situation, this situation. And I may be wrong, but I really believe I experienced one of God's angels during that time. We say, oh, that's hokey, preacher. Come on. The Bible says it. We're not going to believe that part. We're going to believe John 3, 16. We're not going to believe that part. Isn't it amazing when we look and we see God doing the work? The problem is so often we do it when, when there's no other way. And what I mean by that is we keep trying, keep trying, and we'll fix it, we'll fix it. And finally God says, I'm going to have to knock you down for you to get your attention on me. And so God allows trials and tribulations to draw us to him. Listen, I want you to notice the heavenly guest in verse 4. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Dude, is that not crazy? Is that not crazy? Now, y'all correct me if I'm wrong. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Y'all didn't know that? Well, I'm not wrong, because he did. So if that will help you. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses was the one who 
was in the wilderness leading the Hebrew children. Moses was the one who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Moses was the one on the backside of the desert who saw a bush burning but not consumed. And God spoke to him. That's Moses. That happened several thousand years before the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember when we talked about this the other day, a couple of Sunday nights ago, chapter 1 of Joshua. I mean, listen, they've went for 40 years. Joshua has followed Moses. Caleb's been right there with him. Moses has led with that great rod. They've went through the Red Sea. Manna's fallen from heaven. Great and mighty things have happened. And God looks at Joshua and says, hey, Moses is dead. He didn't say, hey, Joshua, I want you to sit down now. Just take a deep breath. I want to talk to you about something. It's not pleasant. But no, God just point blank. He said, hey, Joshua, Moses is dead. You're now the leader. This is what I have trained you for. It is for this day. Moses had been dead for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And yet here he is standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a picture, a beautiful picture. Moses dead. Moses, we consider the lawgiver. Now we know God gave it to Moses, but Moses is the one. Am I right? Where did Moses go for God to give him the Ten Commandments? Up on the mountain. And he met, and the glory of God come upon him. God put his hand over Moses in the cleft of the rock because just God's glory would have killed him. Yet here's Moses standing with God the Son in all of his glory. Moses being dead is now transfigured. He's standing here with Jesus. He is a picture of the law here. He, Peter, James, and John need to see what Jesus was showing them. We need to see today, Moses standing there was not just because he was a big name in the Old Testament. And when we think of the Old Testament, we think of anything from Malachi back to Genesis. But the Old Testament went until Jesus died on the cross and resurrected. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, not Malachi. We get all wrapped up in just the printing of this, but Jesus is the Word, and God's Word teaches us uh, very clearly in Hebrew, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and without the death of the testator, there cannot be a New Testament. Jesus is the New Testament in His blood. And He's showing them that Moses being dead is a picture of, of the law, but that it is also a picture of hope that all those who have died in faith, for their, it says that their faith was accounted unto them for righteousness. You say, how does people in the Old Testament get saved? Same way people in the New Testament do. By faith. Or by grace through faith, rather. But on that great and glorious day when the Lord Jesus shall come, all those who are dead in Christ shall do what? Moses is a picture of them. But notice Elijah. Y'all remember Elijah, don't you? He was a bad man. I mean, look. He didn't just whoop 450 bell prophets. He killed them. Those who might, and he gave them plenty of time. Hey, prove yourself. If, you, if your God is who you say he is, let's see it. I'm going to tell you, church, it's time that we stand up, not in a braggadocious, arrogant way, but it is time that we know enough of God's word and we have enough uh, 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 sense of who he is. We are, have been on the mountaintop with him that we stand and we challenge the world in their lies and their absolute abuse. Of men's minds. Oh, tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. You know what tolerance is? It's another word for indifference. And if we truly care, we'll not be tolerant. 
We will be absolutely adamant against sin, but loving those who are dying in it. Amen? Any of you ever told your children about Jesus? Any of you? You ever told your kids about Jesus? You ever told them about how Jesus loved them? Did you tell them that not only did he love you, that he died for you because of his love? You told him about Jesus' love, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? Why did you tell your kids that? Just so they would hear a great story? Or did you teach them because you wanted them to know him as their Lord and Savior too? That they would gain not only heaven and shun hell, but experience the fullness of the life in Christ. Is that why? then we need to realize the world is just as lost. And this whole picture, this whole picture is about the fullness of Jesus Christ, which is what Mark said in the very first verse about the sovereign servant. What did the very first verse of the first chapter of Mark say? The beginning of what? Let me help you. The gospel. That's the way he began this whole book. His whole lookout on this entire 16 chapter book, this letter, and what I believe is the very pattern for other gospels that have looked at it in the Marcon theory, I believe they looked at Mark's pattern. Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the fullness of the good news that God gave the law to show we couldn't keep the law. And we gave us Elijah to show that he's above death. What happened to Elijah? Elijah prophesied. Elijah wanted to die. Asked God to kill him. Did he die? Is he dead? No. Oh. That's been several thousand years ago, hasn't it? Elijah, one day after he had found a protege and God had led him to Elisha, he walked down to that same river Jordan that waters had come down for thousands of years and would continue from where that future Mount of Transfiguration was. And he walked off and he took that mantle and he smote the water and he walked across. And Elisha with him. And all of a sudden, the heavens opened. And a whirlwind caught Elijah up. A, a catching up, a pulling out. What we take our word rapture from. Elijah was raptured. It's a picture of prophecy. It's a picture of God's fullness of catching up and pulling out. That there's hope. There's something to look forward to all throughout Scripture. We have the law and the prophecy of there's a coming Messiah. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, He said Moses shows us death and the hope for those who are dead in Christ. He shows us Elijah, one who is raptured, and all those who are alive and remain uh, uh, shall be called up together with them in the air. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I don't know whether I'm going to be dead in Christ or alive and remain, but one thing I know, because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I'm going with Him. I'm going with Him! Jesus, God, fulfillment of everything, fulfillment of the law. Listen, every jot, every tittle. I don't know about you, but it still gets laborious. I started reading through the Bible this year. I've, I, every time I've read through the Bible, I start in Genesis. Couldn't, couldn't take it this year. I said, you know, I always tell new believers starting the Gospel of John. I'll start in John. So I read John, and I read Matthew, then I read Mark, then I wrote, read Luke, now I'm reading Acts. I'll get to Genesis, and I love reading Genesis, don't get me wrong. And I really love Exodus and that story, how God begins to mold, I, I mean, it's, it's 
painful at times in Genesis. Well, Abraham and Abraham died and Isaac and Isaac died. And, and we talked about Wednesday night. Uh, we talked about all the, just the disgusting tribal and, and selfish manipulation of, uh, of Jacob and his father-in-law and Leah and Rachel and all that other stuff. And Rachel died and, and Jacob died and uh, uh, Joseph died and all of them died. And a book that starts with creation ends in a coffin. And we go through Exodus and we see the story of God's deliverance. And right smack dab in the middle of it, the law comes smacking down on our head. And then we enter into Leviticus. Uh, and then she'll have emblems of pomegranates and circles and ringlets and, and this and little mice on this end and it's going to have this and it's going to have six wings and twelve toes. I don't, I'm not making fun. But it gets laborious almost. It should. That's the whole point. But you know what happened when Jesus died? If you read the very first thing that happened, when it says that Jesus gave up the ghost, there was an earthquake. Immediately, upon the last breath, exhaled, from the lungs of the Son of Man, an earthquake hit. And the veil, the veil that had stood from the beginning of sin in mankind, separation from the garden, the separation of walking with God and seeing Him personally uh, in a close-knit everyday walk without any kind of division or enmity, was split from top to bottom, torn open, and the very altar broken asunder because Jesus had fulfilled it all. I don't know about you, it blows me away. That wherever I'm at, I can be on a plane, be in my truck, I can be in my office, I can be at home in a chair or laying on the couch. I can be on a ball field. I can be in a pulpit. I can be anywhere and call on the name of the Lord. Jesus was God's fulfillment in body. It was God. He is God. And He shows us that in His holiness. These garments were not just bright. And brighter than the snow, they were stainless. Can you imagine they were so bright, they made the snow look dull? That's white. That's white. I always like to tell you this. And if you can't brag about this, I don't mean disrespect. But I love to talk about the beauty of the brightness of that white wedding dress that my wife had on when she walked in the door. And when she walked in, the way the sun was at that time of day, it just radiated and it was just like she stepped out of the sun when she entered into the back of that worship center. If there was ever a time I was going to pass out, it was at that moment. And it was not because of nervousness, but because of thankfulness and being overwhelmed that I wasn't standing officiating someone else. I wasn't, step, I wasn't standing two steps back where I was a best man or a groomsman. I was marrying her. And God had blessed me with her. And all the beauty. But I'm going to tell you, it does not compare to who Jesus is. The holiness. The grace. Listen, the law, you know, when you read Leviticus and all that weight, just realize Jesus fulfilled it all. That's why there's not a Leviticus in the New Testament. He fulfilled it in His glory. He is glory revealed. The glory of God in His Son. And He showed them. Listen, He had walked with them. He had talked with them. He had, he had been tempted. He had hungered. He had been a thirst. He had been dirty. He had been tired. He had went out in the wilderness to get away. But He wanted them to see. Make no mistake. I'm God. 
And he was about to descend. Listen, when he descended that mountain, he headed straight toward the cross. He was showing them what was about to take place. Moses dead. Elijah raptured. Jesus was God and the fulfillment of them all. Hebrews once again tells us that He fulfilled the law. He is a greater prophet. He is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He is the greatest of them all. And He is ours. If we have trusted in Him. Look, we see the cross and the crown revealed here on the peak of this mountain. Jesus said, we stand on this mountain, but I'm going to another Luke explains it a little bit further in chapter 9, verse 31, in a comparison context of the transfiguration. It said, Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease. He spoke, he spoke to them of his impending death, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. They saw the cross and the crown. We want, to, we want to crown him with many crowns, but many times, like Peter, we don't want to talk about the crucifixion. Oh no, Jesus, no. You remember what just happened in the last chapter? Peter said, oh no, Lord. He rebuked him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to that cross. I'm going to the cross. And any form of religion, any form of belief that in any way diminishes the role of God the Son dying on the cross without sin is a false narrative. It's about Jesus, church. It's all about Him. We see the heavenly guests, Moses, Elijah, and we see Jesus' fulfillment. But then I want you to notice with me the heavenly Father. The heavenly Father. Look at in the latter part of this context. After Elijah and Moses, they were talking with Jesus. They just, hey, what's going on, man? What you been doing? You been hanging with the Father? Hey, Elijah, so you still ain't dead. Y'all think I'm silly? They were talking. What were they talking about? I mean, were they talking about the, New York, the failing New York Times? What, what were, they, were they talking about politics? What, what, were they, what was Herod going to do and Pilate and all that stuff? I think they were talking about the fulfillment of the law. Moses said, Lord, you know, there was days that I, I tried to trust, but even in that trust, I didn't fully understand this. Man, this, this, is, this is way cool. Elijah said, Jesus, I had no idea what I was praying when I asked you to kill me. This whole rapture thing, it's worked out pretty good. But they talked about what was coming and the fulfillment of it for them. Because they would be sealed because of Him. But Then we hear the voice of one above that. Peter said, This is crazy. This is, this is beyond crazy. You know, Peter always, he was the first one. And a lot of times that's really good, but sometimes he just, he should have just studied to be quiet. So Peter looks at all this, and he answered and he said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. You know, I see him standing there with his beard and his little hat. Jesus, this is really good. <laughs> really? You're with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and you're up. I mean, it's beautiful anyway. The scenery. But they're standing in the glory of God. He says, it's really, really cool for us to be up here. Let's make three tents. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Elijah and Moses wasn't there to be worshipped. What have you built a temple to? Been a built a temple to your kids? 
kids more important than Jesus. They're my heart and soul. I'm going to tell you, I love my kids, but they're not my heart and soul. Jesus is. I don't mean any disrespect by that. I really don't. But we've got to get our priorities right. Or listen, God gets rid of idols. Ball your idol. We'll teach our kids to make good grades, get a good GPA, high SAT, and play your best and practice the sport year-round and never memorize three verses of Scripture. We have got the cart before the horse. You've got to decide what really matters. You don't know why we don't have more kids here? You don't know why we don't have more students here? More high schoolers here when we've got many more we can reach is because we have displayed to them that God only matters if something else is not more important. If we plan our life around the things of this world rather than planning it based on the truth of Jesus Christ and Him alone, we're no better than Peter. And we say, oh, let's make a, let's make a tabernacle for Him and for her and for them and for this and for that. Jesus is what it was all about. Because he did not know what to say, so he just said something. It says, he did not know what to say because he was very, very afraid. We see a visual message. First of all, we see the Heavenly Father coming down. Look at verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, it's a different story than the last time God spoke, isn't it? The last time we saw it, a year or so before, we see the Holy Spirit descending as a dove over Jesus at His baptism. And the Father speaks and He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so He was giving signification to who He was. That He was the Son of God and Son of Man. But now He is saying, Hey, this is my beloved son, the same one I told you about down there. The same one John the Baptist told you about. The same one that David told you about and Genesis told you about and Daniel told you about and all the Old Testament told you about. This is him. Now listen to him. We see a visual message. There was a cloud. The cloud is a presence of God. All through Scripture, we see the presence of God. We see it with Moses, don't we? How would they, were they led during the day throughout for 40 years in the wilderness? A pillar of a cloud. Where did God meet with Moses on Mount Sinai? He came in a cloud. And the cloud hung around the top so that no one could even look up and see what was going on. He came and dwelt through that cloud. We see Him coming in the clouds in the rapture. And then in chapter 1 of Revelation 7, in the second coming, He comes in the clouds. But can I tell you something? At the end of the, the reign of Christ for a thousand years, and Satan is loosed, and the final battle has taken place, and the old heaven and the old earth is burned away, and the new heaven and earth, new earth uh, comes, uh, and God shows it, and new Jerusalem comes down. There are no clouds. For there is no veil of any kind. No, sin has been completely and forever extinguished, and it is nothing but the children of the Most High God. And we will dwell with Him eternally. The visual message was, hey, God was in this place. When's the last time we had a cloud of God hang over our life? When's the last time you experienced the cloud of God in worship? Where you said, boy, that thing's hanging right around my heart. We see the presence of God, but then the verbal message, this is my son. Hear him. It was done to encourage and to authenticate as well as authorize what he was about to do. For he said he talked of his decease. You see, they spoke of the law. That's what they talked about. 
They spoke of the prophets and the need for the cross. Isaiah 53, no doubt they stood there and said, Oh, this makes sense. I remember. I remember uh, what, what Isaiah had written later. I remember that he would come and as a tender, tender branch, a tender root, would be struck down. That he'd be bruised for our sins and our iniquities, and by his stripes we would be healed. There was a need for the cross. But then I want you to see the transformation of faith. The transformation of faith. Jesus had been transformed before them. We've seen it in, a, in the heavenly visitors. We've seen it in the heavenly Father in a both visual and verbal message. But we see the transformation of faith very quickly. We see... The fearful three. They lacked confidence. They were, they were scared. It said that they were sore afraid. They had no confidence. You know why? They'd been asleep. They'd been asleep during some of the most dramatic events in history. These three slept. What are you sleeping through today? It's amazing how many Baptists can sleep with their eyes open. I'm guilty. Go day in, day out, week after week, and not be awake to God's realness in my life. And he's standing right there, and we go crying out, Oh, God, save me, save me. God said, I'm right here. I never left. I told you I wouldn't. You quoted it. You told the church, I'd never leave you. Why don't you believe your own words? What I have told you in your heart. You ever feel God get on you like he got on these di disciples? Oh, ye li of little faith. He tells me that all the time. He said, boy, when are you going to grow up? They lack confidence. They weren't sure. Listen, what about the other nine? They lack confidence too. They're down there in the valley. These three up here, they're sleeping. These nine down here, they're trying to do something for God. And they don't have the confidence to do it because Jesus... They can't literally see him and put their hands on him. You say, well, I just don't believe I can do it because I don't have a deacon with me. or The pastor's out of town. I don't think I can lead somebody. Listen, if God saves you, you can do anything God wants you to do. You don't need me. You don't need your mama. You don't need your preacher. You don't need your Sunday school teacher. All you need is Jesus. That's all you need. Because I'm going to tell you, there's going to be places in life where... He's all you got. They lacked confidence. They lacked a real communion. You know, they'd walk with him, talk with him. I mean, he said, how long you walk with me and you still don't get this? Did you not see me raise the dead? Did you not see me? You remember he just chastised me. He said, how many did I feed with five loaves? 5,000. How many baskets? 12. Well, what about the other one? You had seven Seven fish. How many did I feed? Seven, uh, 4,000. How many baskets? Seven. And you don't think I can feed you across the water with one loaf for just 13 of us. Really? Really. I mean, I don't even have to do a miracle. I can just split the bread really thin. We'll be all right. It's not a big lake. How many of us are, have diminished our appreciation of who Jesus really is. He came to encourage us. God authenticated him. He said, he is my son. Listen to him. He authorized him to go to the cross. And yet they fell asleep. They didn't have any confidence. They didn't have any real communion. Are you walking and talking with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or you just have a form of godliness? Because the faltering nine, they had no compassion. At least not much. As we see very quickly, when they came, 
to the other disciples, he saw a great multitude and the scribes questioning them. And straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed and ran to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what, what's your question today? One of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which had a dumb spirit. And who, what, wheresoever he takes him, he tears him and he foams and he gnashes with his teeth and he pineth away. I spake to your disciples and that they would cast him out and they couldn't. Are we the faltering nine? God's called us to lead this world to him. Are we doing just that? Are we leading our world to Jesus? Is the world see Jesus in us? No compromise. No, no kind of special new message. It's the same message. It is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ is the only hope for America and this world. He's the only hope for our police officers and for our firemen and first responders. He's our only hope for our military and our government and our schools and our kids and our adults and our senior adults. He is our only hope. They didn't have any compassion. He said in verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. No doubt the nine down there said, hey, we ain't got time for all this. Jesus is not with us. We're worried about getting everything ready for when he comes back. Are we so worried about meeting our needs at Eastside that we're not busy evangelizing our world for Christ? Making disciples. We're so busy with our four and no more that we're not being obedient to the Great Commission. Listen, we must be about the Father's business. Because, listen, the fretful father of this man, he was uncertain about the ba uh, based on his past. He said, if, if, in verse 22, if you can do anything. Do you ask God if you can do something? Or do you say, God, I know you can do all things. You see, the fretful father was uncertain based on his past. And his inability based on personal weakness. He said in verse 24, And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you realize today you can't do it? You can't fix yourself. You can't fix your spouse. You can't fix your country. You can't fix yourself. But he can. And the fretful father understood and when we realize our inability and we get past the uncertainty and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we'll experience the fullness of Jesus Christ like Colossians said, like Peter, James, and John saw with Elijah and Moses as witnesses that Jesus is the very picture of the Godhead bodily. That He is God. He is the Son. He is the Savior. He is Lord. Of all. He is able. What is it in your life? He is able. You say, but you don't. He's able. He's able to do it. He is willing to save you. He didn't come to this earth just to mumble around. He, he didn't even just come just for the Jews. For he sent Paul, and then he began to send others to the Gentile nations to be saved and to provoke Israel. He is able, he is willing. And just simply put, he is. Just as God spoke to Moses, I am, today Jesus is, as they come to the instruments. I know it's a lot to take in. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot because I've, I've tried to chew on it. Listen, I don't know about you. I don't eat liver. I don't eat liver. I mean, organs are for playing, not eating. 
But one time, you know, oh, it's good for you. And, oh, and one time I saw some being cooked, and I said, you know, that looks pretty good. It don't smell too bad. I cut me off a piece. Yeah, listen to me. I put that piece in my mouth, and I began to chew it. And the more I chewed it, the bigger it got. I mean, bigger. I'm like, oh, 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 my Lord. I'm going to tell you, this message has been like that for me this week. The more I chewed on it, the bigger it was because he is so big. I can't do justice to this. Not in a million years. I can't do justice to who Jesus is, who he was and who he will be. But I do know one thing. More than what I have told you this morning, He will reveal Himself to you if you're open and willing today. If you will stop worrying about what's going to happen in five minutes or 15 minutes, I'm going to tell you something. You won't worry about lunch if you'll get your eyes on what's going on on the mountaintop. You'll be willing to set aside anything when you see Christ in all of His glory. Why don't you come and trust Him as Lord and Savior? Trust Him and serve Him in gladness. Be baptized as a born-again believer. Not to be saved, but because you've been saved. To join at Eastside and say, God, I am tired of walking this mediocre, halfway life of being in, being out. Lord, I want to give it all to you today. No doubts, no fears, all faith. You are my Savior. You're God who died on the cross for my sins. And one day you're coming back for me. Let him transform you. Is our prayer. Stand and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. Come to him.